Father God, as we come to gather around your word this, uh, this morning, we pray, Father God, that you would feed us from your word. Please open up our minds that we might be able to receive from your hand as you feed us this morning. Lord, please nourish us where we need to be nourished. Please build us up and strengthen us where we need to be strengthened. And challenge us, Lord, where we need to be challenged, that we might become better soldiers for Christ in your service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, Sunday mornings when uh, I'm teaching, we're going through the book of Judges. So Judges, please. uh, Chapter 8 this morning. Judges chapter 8. And uh, we're completing the life of Gideon this morning. Uh, While you're trying to find Judges chapter 8, I'll just refresh your memory as to what's been happening so far. Israel were in a place of oppression under the Midianites. The Midianites came from Saudi Arabia kind of region. They were a mighty people and they came raiding at harvest time. They would come in on camels and they would plunder the land, taking all the grain and food and destroying what was left, leaving the people destitute and broken. And for seven years, the people of Israel suffered and their suffering was because they had sinned and engaged in idolatry. But out of this situation, we're told the children of Israel cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up a deliverer, a man named Gideon. And Gideon is the sixth judge. Now, Gideon was as destitute and broken as the next man. He was weak and he was fearful. However, the Lord would use this man, proving what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And if you feel weak, destitute and broken, Praise the Lord. You're just the man for God to be able to use. And you might have been in awe with what Gideon uh, accomplished in his life. uh, But uh, I'm sure your opinion of Gideon Gideon will change by the time we come to the end of this morning's session. He wasn't all that he was cracked up to be. He started off, he was called and he was tested and he was tasked with tearing down uh, an altar to Baal and an Asherah pole in his father's land. And in its place, he erected an altar and sacrifice to the Lord. And then once Gideon had been brought through that time of testing, the spirit of the Lord uh, came upon Gideon and he was anointed for the work of ministry. Gideon blew a trumpet, sent out messengers and amassed an army of 32,000 troops. And the armies of Israel and Midian faced off against each other uh, uh, over what's called the Jezreel Valley. Uh, The Jezreel Valley is a fast, flat terrain in the middle of Israel that is a perfect place for engaging in warfare. It is also known as the Valley of Megiddo, from where we get our word Armageddon, where a great end-time battle will happen on the same field. And the Midianite forces vastly outnumbered the uh, Israelites, and into that situation, the Lord speaks to Gideon. Now, if the Lord was to speak to me in that situation, knowing that I was vastly outnumbered, The word I'd be wanting to hear is I'm going to add a couple of hundred thousand extra troops to your number. But instead, what the Lord says is the people who are with you are too many. And uh, victory for Israel with an army of 32,000 would still lend itself to Israel claiming the glory. And it was important that the Lord get the glory for the victory. It is always important that God gets the glory in our lives and in all that happens. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, it says in Isaiah 42. forty-two. And at the well of Herod, Gideon dismissed all who were fearful, that's 22,000 men, 
And then Gideon dismissed all who were who drunk the water without restraint, a further 9,700 men. So now Gideon had a crack force of special forces of a, a group of 300 men. And this group embarked upon a stealth mission armed with just torches hidden under clay jugs in one hand and trumpets in the other. And in the middle of the night, they gathered around the Midianite camp. The clay jugs were broken. Light issued forth suddenly. Trumpets were sounded and a battle cry issued forth. The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Confusion descended on the Midianite camp and every man fell upon his neighbour, swiping and striking each other with the sword. And then come morning, the evidence of what had happened came to light. And the Midians, Midianites had been killing each other. And so in fear, they fled towards the Jordan, wanting to cross over Jordan, beating a hasty retreat. It was at that point, Gideon sent messengers to the Ephraimites to be called into battle. They came down to the Jordan to try to cut off the retreat of the Midianites. And they ended up killing, up, uh, killing two of the princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. They then brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon. And so Israel had won a tremendous victory, not because Gideon was a great leader, but because Gideon served a great God. And if we want victory in our lives, we must be sure to be anchored in to our great God. So we saw the calling of Gideon, we've seen the testing of Gideon, and we've seen this ministry of Gideon and how effective it was, a tremendous victory. Unfortunately, as we embark upon the conclusion of Gideon's story here in Judges 8, we are going to see the decline of Gideon. And that's the title of today's talk, The Decline of Gideon. And how does a man who has been used so mightily of God fail? How does a man who has been used so mightily of God go into decline? It's easy. He stops being governed by God and starts being governed by himself. If you want to fail in life, stop being governed by God and start governing your own life. It's a perfect recipe for things getting messed up. And it can happen to us all. It can happen to us all. And, you know, a person who is anointed by God, a person who is mightily used by God, can fail miserably when they are apart from God. And God anoints many people with gifts of leadership and and teaching, evangelism, encouragement, hospitality, uh, administration, any number of different gifts. But let me issue a warning here. Don't elevate a person because of their anointing. Just because you see somebody with an anointing upon their life, don't elevate that person. The anointing is not evidence of a great person, but of a great God. The anointing is evidence of the grace and goodness of God at work in that person's life. Don't look to the person, look to the God who gives the anointing. Many good and godly men have failed because they have neglected to anchor themselves in Christ. And that is what we're going to see in Judges 8, a man who slowly lets go of his anchor. Now, we can split chapter 8 into three sections. The first section is uh, where Gideon defeats the remaining Midianites. The second section is where Gideon makes an ephod, which proves a stumbling block for Israel. And the third section is Gideon's retirement and uh, where he sires many children, including a man named Abimelech. Uh, that, uh, so that first section is, is really mopping up 
after the battle. The second section is messing up after he makes a mistake. And the third section is setting up, ready for what's going to follow. Mopping up, messing up, setting up. That's our structure for this morning. So mopping up, verses 1 to 21. Let's, uh, let's just read the first three verses. Now, the men of Ephraim said to him, that is to Gideon, why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with the Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply. So he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Ebiezer? God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger towards him abated when he had said that. So Ephraim now raises a complaint against Gideon. They were late into the battle because uh, his, um, uh, uh, Gideon hadn't sent for them. And he said, why, why did you not call us earlier to the battle? Why are we last to be asked to fight? You see, initially, Gideon had sent out messengers to Asher, Naphtali, Zebulun and Manasseh, all northern tribes. But Ephraim hadn't been on the initial roll call. Only when they had Midian on the run did Gideon send messengers to Ephraim. Now, as Judah was emerging as the dominant tribe of the south, Ephraim was emerging as the dominant tribe of the north. And to exclude the most prominent tribe in a major conflict is quite a slight, really. And Ephraim were peeved that they were not included in the 300, a case of sour grapes, you might say. And uh, Gideon was from Manasseh and Ephraim and Manasseh were brothers, both sons of Joseph. So this feels a bit like a petty squabble between siblings, if you ask me. But in response to Ephraim, Gideon takes a leaf out of Solomon's book. Solomon's book being Proverbs. And Proverbs 15 verse 1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And here Gideon uh, humbles himself and his clan and elevates the tribe of Ephraim, a soft answer. And he says that his clan, clan may have been in the heart of the battle, but the Ephraimites accomplished far more by being on the edge of the battle. After all, Ephraim had slain two of the Midianite princes, Oreb and Zeb. Gideon had no trophy kills to his name. Ephraim had the better spoils. And so this soft answer clearly works because we read that their anger towards him abated when he said that. So Gideon here proves to be an accomplished diplomat. See, the issue for Ephraim was one of status. They felt slighted by being called late to the battle. Their wounded pride led them to rebuke God's appointed deliverer. Let me just say here this morning, there is no room for Ephraimites in the work of Calvary Chapel Maystone. There is no room for people who are looking for recognition and status. We work collectively to execute the Lord's will. And when there is victory, it is God who gets the glory, not man. Jesus is the one who holds status and recognition in this church. Moving on, uh, we're going to read about the slight of Sukkoth and Penuel, verses 4 to 9. When Gideon came to the Jordan, he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over exhausted, but still in pursuit. Then he said to the men of Sukkoth, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, 
for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. And the leaders of Sukkoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with the briars. Nice. Then he went up from there to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkoth had answered him. So he also spoke to the men of Penuel, saying, When I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. Now at this point, 122,000 Midianites had fallen to the sword. There are only 15,000 Midianites still at large. And the remnant of the Midianite force were fleeing for their lives. But And you see, like a weed will return strengthened if only the head is broken off. Midian could potentially return stronger if they were not fully routed. So Gideon was intent on killing off the remaining 15,000 Midianites. And specifically, he had his goal set upon the two Midianite kings, Zeba and Zalmunna. Ephraim had killed the princes. Gideon wanted the kings. And it's incredible to see that 300 special forces were pursuing these 15,000 Midianites. Such was the fear that had fallen upon these Midianites. 122,000 Midianites had fallen to the sword, yet not a single drop of Israeli blood had yet to fall to the ground. That's the army that has God on their side. But it had been a long, exhausting battle. Israel had gone through the night and through the day, and the men are understandably exhausted and hungry. So they're looking for fortification, something to renew their strength. And having crossed the Jordan, the 300 arrive at Sukkoth in the tribal territory of Gad. And Gideon asks their, uh, their fellow Israelites in Sukkoth for bread for his men. Now it would seem that the leadership of Sukkoth gather for an emergency meeting and uh, they, come to a, uh, they come to reasons, do we feed these guys or do we not? And the thing is, for seven years, they have seen the massive raiding parties of the Midianites come and go. And they probably reason, well, if we offer aid to Gideon and his small band of 300 men, this could create greater consequences for us in the future if the Midianites raise up another force and come back. So united, the leaders of Sukkoth come to Gideon and say, no, we're not going to give you the bread that you want. And uh, they say, not until you have a definitive victory, not until you have the two kings of Midianite uh, of the Midianites in your hand, will we offer you aid. You know, as if 122,000 men defeated is not definitive enough, they will not give support to their own countrymen. This is abominable. Now, Gideon may have been the perfect diplomat when it came to speaking to the Ephraimites, but it seems as if all diplomacy goes out the window at this point um, and Gideon breathes what is effectively a murderous threat to the people of Sukkoth. And he says there in verse seven, I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Now, I think that the meaning here is a little bit obscured by our translation. If we were to read this in Young's literal translation, it brings greater clarity. There it says, I have threshed your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with threshing instruments. So not just I will tear your flesh, but I will thresh your flesh 
and use threshing instruments in doing that as well. The word tear is actually the word thresh and it carries the connotation of being trampled on and the implication is that the same instruments that are used to thresh wheat would be employed to thresh the leaders of Sukkoth. Now, um, when threshing wheat, what, what the instrument that was used often enough is called a threshing sledge. If you were to type in threshing sledge into Google, you'll be able to see a picture of one. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a piece of wood, um, probably about the size of a manhole cover, and it's got stones embedded in it. And the threshing sledge would be harnessed to oxen and the thresher would stand on the threshing sledge and then he would be pulled over the wheat. And the effect of the stones in the piece of wood would help to thresh and separate the grain from, from the stalks and so forth. And what Gideon is implying he will do is he will drag the leaders of Sukkoth over thorns and briars the way a threshing sledge is dragged over wheat. Or the leaders of Sukkoth will be made to lay on thorns and briars and they'll be threshed by drawing threshing sledges over them. Either way, this will result in their death in no small, gruesome manner. Remember, we met Gideon threshing barley in a wine press, and from humble beginnings, he now asserts himself in a bloodthirsty manner and using his past knowledge of threshing as the means by which he will exact revenge on the people of Sukkoth. He's gone from a man who is saving Israel to a man who is avenging himself on Israel. And so we see that decline coming into Gideon's life. So moving on, he comes to a nearby city of Penuel and Gideon makes the same request of the people there and the same neg negative response comes back to the 300 men. We're not going to give you food. So Gideon, no doubt, incensed in the same manner as he was with Sukkoth, threatens to exact his revenge upon his return, this time by pulling down the tower in Penuel. Now this tower in Penuel uh, would be uh, the place that everybody would flee in a time of invasion. It was a stronghold, it was the keep. And uh, what uh, Gideon is saying is, I'm going to pull down this stronghold, and which would result in the death of everyone who takes refuge in this, in, in this tower. So same thing, avenging his, himself upon the very people he has been sent to deliver and to save. I kind of feel as if this highlights how relationships between the eastern tribes of Israel and the western tribes of the Transjordan tribes had broken down. Israel is no longer a united people. That Jordan River has really put them into two different groups. And uh, this highlights how Gideon is no longer operating under a biblical system of justice, but he's taking matters into his own hands and he's being governed by his own passions. He's turning into more of a tyrant than a godly judge, it would seem. And when a nation is in decline morally, you will see a decline in the leaders of that country morally as well. We see this in Israel and Gideon, and I rather feel as if we can see that in the world today, in our own country. We as a country are in moral decline, and we can see that reflected in our leaders who are in moral decline as well. 
Okay, moving on to the capture of the Midianite kings, verses 10 to 12, we read. Now Zeba and Zalmunna were at Karkor, and their armies with them, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for 122,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. Then Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in tents, on the east of Nobara and Jogbaha, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. When Zebra and Zalmunna fled, he pursued them, and he took the two kings of Midian, Zebra and Zalmunna, and routed the whole army. So we've got these two Midianite kings, Zeba and Zalmunna, along with a remnant army of 15,000 Midianite men. And they had retreated as far as Karkor, which is approximately 100 miles east of the Dead Sea. And the Midianites clearly felt as if they had reached a place of security, because we're told in verse 11, the camp felt secure. Now, this kind, this scenario kind of brings back to me echoes of the film Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Um, and if you remember that film, uh, after a life of crime, a posse of men are hired to hunt down Butch, Butch and Sundance. And uh, here we see Gideon being that posse hunting down Butch and Sundance, which are Zebra and Zamunda. And after an exhausting and relentless pursuit, Butch and Sundance jump off a cliff into a river to escape. And they end up in Bolivia, where they feel secure. But of course, they are far from safe and justice eventually catches up with them. Now, I doubt Zebra and Zalmuna have the charm or scream presence of Paul Newman and Robert Redford, but they certainly felt they had outrun their pursuers like Butch and Sundance did. And what Gideon does is he launches a second stealth attack. This time he approaches Karkor using the roads the Bedouin caravans would have used. Um, I can't remember the terminology they used. Uh, yeah, Gideon went up uh, the road of those who dwelt in tents on the east. So these were the Bedouin tracks. And uh, he, he launches a surprise attack, and which results in the death of all the remaining Midianites in the army. And then Zebra and Zalmunna are pursued and caught. This is both a decisive victory for Israel and a decisive defeat for Midian. Now, until this point, Midian has been a sizable presence in the Middle East. But from this point on, uh, in the biblical account, we will see that the uh, presence of the Midianites declines and dwindles. This really does spell the end for the Midianite people. So Gideon has Zebra and Zalmunna. What happened next? Well, he's going to return to Sukkoth and Penuel. Let's read verses 13 to 17. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle from the ascent of Herez, and he caught a young man of the men of Sukkoth and interrogated him. And he wrote down for him the leaders of Sukkoth and its elders, 77 men. Then he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Here are Zebra and Zalmunna, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Zebra and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your weary men? And he took the elders of the city, and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Sukkoth. Then he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. So Gideon and his 300 men return from battle, the two Midianite kings in their custody, a proof of their victory to Sukkoth and Penuel. And Gideon is able to secure the names of the 77 leaders of Sukkoth from a young man. 
Now this man is clearly not a willing participant because we are told first that he caught a young man, which suggests he was trying to get away, uh, trying to escape capture. And then we are told, uh, secondly, that Gideon interrogated him, which suggests he did not willingly impart the information. Perhaps he was tortured, I don't know. But armed with this information, Gideon returns to Sukkoth and he repeats the insult and slight that he received at the mouth of the elders. And then he makes good on his threat. It says he taught the men of Sukkoth. This is an understatement. These men were taught a very painful object lesson in a manner which led to a very gruesome and painful death. Gideon then turns his attention to Penuel. And on seeing the approaching armies of Gideon, no doubt the people flee to the tower for refuge, it being the city's stronghold and keep. But Gideon doesn't need to establish the names of the leaders of Penuel. No doubt those with higher status in the city would have had first position in the tower. And so when he tears down the tower, making good his word, the leaders would die with its collapse. And to be sure, Gideon kills all the men of the city. This is an absolute bloodbath. And I do believe that this is disproportionate to the crime that they committed. And to kill all the men of the city is beyond what he threatened to do. So this is a sign that Gideon is now out of control, without restraint. He's treating his own countrymen with the same vengefulness that he treats the enemies of Israel. And with a personal army of a fearless 300 men, who can stop him? Who can stop this man Gideon? Now we come to the execution of the Midianite kings, verses 18 to 21. And he said to Zebra and Zalmunna, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? So they answered, as you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. Then he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. And he said to Jetha, his firstborn, rise, kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a youth. So Zebra and Zalmunna said, rise yourself and kill us. For a man, for as a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Zebra and Zalmunna and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camel, camel's necks. So Gideon's attention is now returns to Zebra and Zalmunna. Now having seen what Gideon is prepared to do with his own countrymen, they know things are not going to end well for them. He only kept them alive as a testimony to Sukkoth and Penuel. Now that objective has been achieved, the two kings of Midian can be moved from custody to execution. And a court of sorts, I suppose, appears. Uh, it's a kangaroo court, of course, because their sentence is already predetermined. And uh, Gideon questions the two kings about those whom they killed at Tabor. That's Mount Tabor. And Mount Tabor is, in a, in a, is a hill south of Galilee. It was the launch point for Barak's attack upon the Canaanites in Judges 4. But it was also where Israelis were slaughtered during one of the Midianite raids. And Gideon then reveals that the people they killed were in fact his brothers, not just fellow countrymen, but the sons of his mother. So Gideon is now not just acting as their judge, he's also acting as his brother's avenger, or as, as his brother's avengers of blood. So Gideon then turns to his firstborn son and confers upon him the honour of killing the murderers of his uncles. Now this is... Uh, Quite something. I don't know whether this was bring your son to work day. 
um, what he was doing there. I mean, but this is some initiation for a son, isn't it? But it, what it is, it's a humiliation to the two kings to be killed by a youth. But I mean, what a good parenting model, eh? When on a killing spree, remember to take your son with you and don't let him miss out on killing a few people himself. His son has seen his father on this murderous rampage ah, and fear grips this boy, understandably. Uh, and he shrinks back from uh, executing these two kings. I kind of feel as if fear grips the two kings also. They don't want to be hacked to pieces by the ineptitude of an unskilled boy. That would prove a very slow and agonising death, wouldn't it? So the two kings goad Gideon to kill them himself, which he probably does. And so the last of the Midianite army is killed. And we read there, right at the end, that Gideon took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels' necks. Um, now these are, are not just the spoils of war. These are the trappings of a king. These two kings had special ornaments on their camels denoting their, their, their regency, as it were. And while late, later Gideon will reject the call of the people to become a king, he doesn't reject the trappings of a king. And we're going to see this as a rising trend in Gideon's life. This is a man who enjoys status and luxury. And uh, the crescent ornament is possibly a symbol of a Midianite de uh, deity that they worshipped. We know today that the crescent, often accompanied with a star, is the symbol adopted by Islam, of course. Islam dates back to the 7th century AD, and so it's a newer religion compared to Judaism and Christianity. However, the crescent symbol predates Islam by many years. Uh, and it was used in conjunction with the moon god Astarte or Ishtar. And whenever you see a, a picture of Ishtar, it's usually a woman and she has a crescent on her head. She was worshipped by the Canaanites, by the Egyptians and the Phoenicians and quite possibly here by the Midianites as well. So if this is the case here, then we have Gideon taking the symbol of a pagan deity, which only adds to his decline. So there we are. We've seen the mopping up of the Midianite army. Let's just look a little bit at the messing up of Gideon. Verses 22 to 28. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Let's just stop there for a second. Gideon has proven he can provide strong leadership. He has affirmed a clear spiritual direction in his early part of his ministry. He saved Israel from her enemies, all the good qualities that you'd want in a leader. So it's not surprising that Israel called upon Gideon to rule over them as a king. Uh, not only that, but his son and his grandson after him. So they're offering to start a dynasty, a kingly dynasty with him. And uh, I do believe that God has created mankind to be governed and ruled over. We all have this natural inclination within us to want to look to somebody in leadership. However, the one that should rule over mankind, the one that should rule over us, is the Lord. But man, in his fallen nature, turns towards other men instead of turning towards God. And this cry from Israel really only serves to highlight how Israel has strayed from the Lord. 
that the people would rather bow down to a man rather to God. But Gideon reflects, uh, rejects the offer with an eloquent statement. He says, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And this is exactly as it should be. Yet we have seen that Gideon likes the trappings of kingship. So even though he will reject the call for being a king, he will begin to act like a king. And eventually we will see that one of his sons will be crowned a king, that being Abimelech. Let's read on verses 24 to 28. Then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you, that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. For they had, they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, we will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment and each man threw it into it the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments, pendants and purple robes which were on the kings of Midian. And besides the chains that were around their camels' necks, then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in the city Ophrah, and all Israel played the prostitute with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house, Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted their heads no more, and the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. So Gideon makes a request for all the earrings from the plunder. And we're told the Midianites, we are told that the Midianites, they had defeated, we are told that the Midianites that had been defeated wore earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Now this is not strictly true, they were not descended from Ishmael, but they were Ishmaelites in the way that uh, they were nomadic children of the East, the same way that Ishmaelites were nomadic children of the East, and in the same way wore earrings. Now, despite refusing the kingship, this act shows us that Gideon was falling into the role of a king, because by requesting for a portion of everybody's spoil, he was demanding a symbolic gesture of submission. And the fact that the people were willing to give of their spoils to Gideon to lay them out on a garden, a garment, shows that they were acknowledging themselves as his vassals. He wasn't operating as a, he, he didn't accept the title of king, but he was operating as a king and people willingly submitted to him. And the total weight of uh, gold gathered had the character of a royal treasury. It was a vast amount of wealth. And added to this were the crescent ornaments worn by the Midianite kings, the purple robes worn by the Midianite kings, along with the camel chains and pendants that were with the Midianite kings. So he had this big pile of gold, but he also had the ornaments and garments of the Midianite kings, which he had kept separate. So Gideon had the riches of a king, the garments of a king, the idols of a king, and he had the submission of his subjects like a king. So we can see that trend that uh, Gideon has fallen into. The gold was melted down and a golden ephod was formed. Now, if we are being gracious, we might say Gideon was backing up his former statement that the Lord will rule over you but with a means by which people could seek the Lord for his guidance, namely an ephod, because in the ephod was the Urim and the Thummim, which were used to seek the will of God. But I think that's being too gracious. Um, because when we hold this up to close scrutiny, firstly, the high priest in Shiloh already had an ephod. A second was not required. And secondly, 
we are told he set it up in the city, i.e. it was positioned in, in, a, in a shrine or something like that, like an idol. And, you know, perhaps Gideon put it on when he wanted to seek the will of God. But if he did so, that would only put himself in the place of the high priest. And the true high priest was there in Shiloh where the tabernacle was. So although he refused the kingship, what he was doing was challenging the authority of the Aaronic priesthood. This speaks of a further decline in Gideon, the fact that he was willing to supplant the Aaronic priesthood in some measure. So it seems two specific sins were committed by Gideon. He set up the ephod uh, I, um, in such a way that it became an idol, and he seems to take on the role of a priest himself. Uh, it's, it's ironic, isn't it? Gideon had formerly pulled down the Asherah pole idol, and now he replaces it with an alternate idol. Gideon had effectively deposed his father as the high priest in the city, and now he seems to establish himself as high priest. And so what is all happening here is a new centre for worship, apart from the tabernacle in Shiloh, is being established here in Ophrah. And it works because we're told all Israel played the prostitute with it there. Not the people in Ophrah, all Israel played the prostitute with it there. So this didn't just have a localised effect. It was the cause of a national decline in the worship of God. Because people stopped going to the tabernacle and started going to Ophrah, to Gideon and to this ephod. For the first time, a judge precipitates idolatry in Israel. And uh, God may have delivered Israel from Midian, but then he fails to restore the nation to the worship of the Lord. And instead, he sets up the nation to return to Baal worship after his death. This is a, an awful act that Gideon is involved in here. But we are told in verse 28, the country was quiet for 40 years. Um, this means there was peace in Israel. In fact, some translation may say that there was peace in Israel for 40 years. But this is the last time we will read these words in the book of Judges. After Gideon dies, Israel does not experience peace again. The decline of Gideon marks the decline of Israel, one that will only go from bad to worse. So the last few verses really are setting up, setting up what's going to follow in chapter nine. Let's read those verses and then see what they say to us. Then Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son whose name he called Abimelech. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. And it was so, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel again played the prostitute with the Baals, and made Baal Bereth their god. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their god, who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. Nor did they show kindness to the house of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. So Gideon, or Jeroboam, has established peace on the land. He's made a name for himself. He's acquired great riches. Has the devotion of the people has become king in all but name. And now he retires to his house in Ophrah. And we read he has 70 sons. And this is clearly not the offspring of one woman because we are told he had many wives. Which shows us once again he's acting like a king. Having many wives and at least 
one concubine, we're told. Uh, now, we're not told the name of Gideon's concubine, but we are told she comes from Shechem. Shechem was a Canaanite city. And so this is an unholy alliance here, uh, something that God had forbidden. And from this union comes Abimelech. And uh, Abimelech is given special mention here for two reasons. First, his name and second, his role. His name, Abimelech, means my father is king, which is another signpost that says Gideon assumes the mantle of king in all but name. You don't call your son my father is king unless you want to have that sort of recognition. And second of all, um, Abimelech is given special mention here because of his role, which we'll see played out in Judges chapter 9. We will see that Abimelech will go further than his father. He will act with greater cruelty than his father and he will establish himself as a king in Israel and he will cause great trouble in Israel. But that's that's for the future. Gideon enjoyed a long and happy life, it would seem, and death came to him as does to all men. He was buried in his father's tomb in the same city he had grown up in and lived all of his life. But what was the legacy that Gideon left behind? A land at peace, you might argue, but that will soon die. It wasn't a lasting peace. He brought an end to Baal worship at the beginning of his life, um, you might say, but not true. He supplanted it with alternate idolatry and Israel will soon return to Baal worship the moment Gideon dies. And what's more, he tore Israel further away from true worship of the Lord God Almighty at the tabernacle in Shiloh. And we're told three things about Gideon's legacy. Israel made Baal Bereth God. Israel did not remember the Lord. And Israel did not show kindness to the house of Jeroboam. That first one, Baal Bereth. Baal Bereth means the covenant Baal. In other words, Jehovah was supplanted with Baal as the covenant God. How? Because Gideon had supplanted the tabernacle with his ephod. So people started to worship Baal as if he was Jehovah. And, though, and so through, that act, through uh, Gideon's actions, he left a legacy where he drew the whole nation away from Jehovah. Second part of his legacy, they did not remember God. This is a damning epitaph to be left with. But this is because Gideon failed to point them towards Jehovah. And then the third thing is, they showed no kindness to Jeroboam. Now this is a prelude to Judges 9, and it will be expanded on where we see Gideon's children are all brutally slain. But note the terminology, they show no kindness to the house of Jeroboam. Jeroboam was the name given to Gideon by the pagan worshippers. Gideon is mentioned nine more times in the Old Testament, but not once as Gideon, always by his pagan name, Jeroboam. Gideon leaves Israel in spiritual ruin, not knowing the Lord. And he is better known by his pagan identity than his God-given identity. Gideon may have died a rich man, but the quality of his physical life was not a reflection of the quality of his spiritual life. And let me just say here this morning, the quality of our physical life is no reflection of the quality of our spiritual life. Just because you have riches in this life does not mean that you are spiritually rich. The prosperity gospel is a lie and a gross distortion and misuse of scripture. 
many good and godly men were poor. And you might say, that's okay. I'm not rich. I'm in no danger of being ensnared by the trappings of kingship. Well, consider this. If you have 3,036 pounds or more to your name, you are in the top 50% of the richest people in the world. If you have £3,036 in your name, you are in the top 50% of the richest people in the world. Now consider this. If your net worth, i.e. the total amount of your assets, so add together the value of your, your house, your possessions, all you own, cash in the bank and stuff, if that is equal to or above £67,198, you are in the top 90% of the richest people in the world. A large percentage of the world would look at you as being as rich as a king, living like a king. Let's not make let's make sure we don't fall into the same trap that Gideon did. Gideon was victorious because God was gracious. If we are victorious, it's not because we are great. It's because God is gracious. Gideon failed because he stopped being faithful to God. The greatest obstacle in the work of God is the faithlessness of his people. And the most important thing you can do as a Christian is obey God. That's what God is looking for. Obedient servants, faithful servants. Gideon began a great leader, but exchanged God's agenda for personal ambition. And all those called to leadership will be tempted to exchange God's agenda in your life for personal ambition. They need to guard against it. And what type of legacy are you leaving behind? Are you leaving your children a rich spiritual heritage or in spiritual ruin? Are you leaving your children knowing the Lord or acceptably not knowing the Lord? Are you leaving a legacy of a godly life or are you better known by your pagan identity? Let's learn the lesson of Gideon here this morning. Amen. Father God, it's difficult to see a godly man fall. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to guard our lives, to guard our hearts and keep us from following the same trajectory. Please help us to remain faithful and obedient to all that you've called of us. Help us to be anchored into Christ and to not let go, I pray in Jesus name. Amen.